and welcome to another episode of the Afterthoughts Archive, a digital diary for my future self. My name is Shiro, and yesterday, October 14th, was my Shosho's 90th birthday. Shosho is the Kikuyu word for grandma, and in Kikuyu culture, we have a naming system that actually honors our parents' parents, our grandparents. For example, the first son in a Kikuyu family is going to be named after the father's father. First daughter is named after the father's mother. Then the second son is named after the mother's father, and the second daughter is named after the mother's mother. According to this tradition, I should have been named after my dad's mother, but my mom decided to break that tradition with very good cause, I might add, and named me after her and my grandmother. So my first name is from my grandmother and my middle name is my mom's name. And my last name is the last name that I got from my mom. So all of my names follow my maternal lineage. when tradition is supposed to, or says that I should have the name to reflect my paternal lineage. We thank God for free will because truly I'm just eternally grateful to my mom and all of the brain power she used to make this decision because I would have been so annoyed to grow up with the names that reflected a history of some man who was never present enough for me to even call a father. Like, what would I look like running around a name that was basically the family tree of a man who probably couldn't name my favorite color, probably didn't know my birthday. So yes, I proudly carry the names of my mother and her mother. And since I wasn't able to travel to Kenya for my Shosho's 90th birthday celebration, I wanted to use this episode to honor her. Anytime I think about her living for nine whole decades, I'm always stuck on the fact that she lived through colonial Kenya, like lived through the concentration camps, lived through the British and their violent grip on the whole of society, the way that they flipped everything upside down, the way they exploited people on a daily basis, made people carry cards to identify themselves on their own land. She lived through all of that and managed to survive to see Kenya declare independence from British rule. And there's a lot we can say about what independence even means and Uh, like neo-colonialism and active imperialism that still occurs and can we really say that Kenya is free you know I have my own feelings but for the sake of of truly just focusing on Shosho I just think it I it just seems like such an incredulous thing to live through to be held captive essentially and exploited on your own land and to see a day where your homeland becomes free again free with an asterisk i literally just cannot conceptualize the fact that my social was alive while the queen and the rest of her gang members literally rounded up people 
tortured them, killed them, before they could ever even dream of their homeland being free. So I, yeah, I just think it's like my show show is truly a walking miracle in that way. And I feel blessed to know her and to have been partially raised by her, to be influenced by her. My Shosho and her husband, aka my Luka, Luka is Kikuyu for grandpa, they both used education as a channel to build their lives individually and together. They were both educators who individually reached the level of headmistress and headmaster and made sure that all of their children prioritized education whether they wanted to or not. Like education was truly by force in my family. And when I talk about being considered a smart kid or a gifted kid when I was younger, the more I reflect, the more I realize that me being seen as smart or gifted had everything to do with my show show and the importance that she placed on education in my life, her life, her children's lives, her other grandchildren's lives. As I said, education was by force or fire. So whereas most American kids spent their summer break going on family vacations, enjoying their free time, watching cartoons, staying up late, sleeping in, I began my summer break by hopping onto a plane, <laughs> unaccompanied minor, you know what it is, and the flight attendants would take care of me from the US, and then when I got to Kenya, Shosho became my guardian, and that is where I spent the whole of my summer break. But before you go thinking that this was, you know, vacation time for me, I want you to be very clear on the fact that the academic calendar in Kenya has nothing to do with the US. Summer who? Summer where? Summer break? What is that? So when I used to touch down in Nairobi, all my cousins are in school. Nobody's there to stay home with me. And my grandma was not about to babysit me. Like that is, that's not her ministry. She, <laughs> she wasn't trying to have her grandchild just be idle watching. T are you, listen, it was literally never going to happen. So what she did as an educator was enroll me in school. So yes, that means that I was in school year round. I would end school in the US and then I would again hop on that plane, get to Kenya and I would be promptly enrolled into school with my cousin Shiro. And if you're listening and you're confused by how her name is Shiro, I already talked about the naming system. And so in our family, what we do is that we differentiate by our parents. So her dad, his name is Robert, so she's Shira Bob. My mom, her name is Jerry, so my my name is Shira Jerry. So anytime we're together, that's how we differentiate. So Shira Bob, that's my cousin. She's a year older than me. So when I'd be enrolled in school with her during my summer breaks, I was placed in her grade, which thank God, like I cannot imagine doing <laughs> school in Kenya without her. Like she is oh she's a writer like she truly held me down i don't know if i would have survived love her down so what that meant is that if i had just finished first grade in the u.s i would spend my summers in second grade classes with shira bob and these summers 
are the reason I would breeze through schoolwork when me and my American peers returned from summer break. So when people are like, oh my God, you're so smart. Like, how do you already know multiplication and division? It's like, I was literally getting beat by a teacher in Kenya for not knowing these things. So I actually learned by fire and I'm, I'm beyond this. Like, I'm so far ahead. It's actually, I just, I don't know what to do with myself. And yeah, you know, I'm not trying to normalize or glorify the actual trauma from being beaten by teachers because that really was a thing. But this is all just to say that a lot of what I recognize as me being super smart actually just came from the fact that I was overprepared for school, essentially, because of my shoshu's huge emphasis on education. And if we're going to go back in time before that, my shosho actually traveled to the U.S. early on in my life. Um, you know, we were a transatlantic family. We didn't just go to Kenya. Sometimes they came to us, which I realize is a privilege. It's a luxury. I actually give so much thanks that my grandparents were, at, were able to travel to the U.S. and come stay with us for some months at a time here and there. Like, I recognize that a lot of um, families who are split between oceans and continents don't get that luxury so much gratitude to that but yeah so before I was even before we're even talking about me going to school in Kenya my social traveled to the U.S. early on in my life and when she was staying with us she found out that my mom was taking me to a babysitter on a daily basis I don't know what age I was I want to say like maybe four or something and when she found out my mom was just taking me to a babysitter to just sit around idly and you know just watch tv sometimes and eat some food she just said what what is that babysitter who what is a babysitter why isn't this child in school and do you know that <laughs> my shoshu walked down to our local salvation army in jersey city new jersey no google no Bing, no Yahoo, no internet search, no computer, no phone, no nothing, found out that the Salvation Army had a preschool program and enrolled me in that program with the money that Maguka gave to her for the duration of her trip to the U.S. Let me, let me, let me break that down. She came to the U.S. to chill, or I mean, I would think to chill, enjoy her children in the U.S., see where they're living, how they're living, how they're doing, all that. But she she couldn't get past the fact that I was going to a babysitter. So she then took the money from my grandpa that he gave. He was like, you know, here's some pocket money while you travel. Da, 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 da. Took some of those dollars, went down to the local Salvation Army. I still to this day wish I could have been like cognizant enough to witness that conversation, remember that conversation, what it looked like for her to... I don't know, ask them questions. How did she even know that? I, like, I, I don't know. To do that in a city, a country, a whole continent that you don't even live in, that is just, ugh. it's like audacity in the best way. And then to follow this educational theme throughout my life, uh, my Shoshu actually visited the U.S. again in 2006. And this was the year that I graduated from eighth grade in Jersey City. And I was about to leave for boarding school. So I was going to go, what, five, six hours away. And my shoshu happened to be visiting and staying with us. So she actually got to accompany me and my mom 
to boarding school in Exeter. And I think it was actually when I got accepted and selected Exeter as my school that I learned that Maguka actually attended University of Exeter in England. I went to Phillips Exeter Academy. He went to University of Exeter. I had no idea when I applied, but something about that just feels like those moments when the universe conspires to to directly connect us to our ancestors in very serendipitous ways because like there's not a lot of great things I can say about my time there and like I don't prefer to be associated with Exeter but when I think about the fact that my grandpa my Vuka, went to the University of Exeter in England as an African man, like, you know, he was he was in the class of people with Obama's father who went over to Europe. He survived the PWI-ness of it all. So if nothing else, I feel like I can attribute my ability to survive the place to my literal ancestors. Like, I don't think I could have done that without the actual spiritual backing of him and all my ancestors who actually survived much much worse so not even worse but like so much more covert violence overt sorry overt violence so yeah fun little facts we both went to exeter on different continents we survived pwis love my book got down and yeah so as i continue to reflect on my relationship with my show show and the ways that she's changed the the trajectory of my life both directly and indirectly I'm struck by the small things that she did that had really big impacts on my life and even just the small things that I didn't know about that have absolutely changed the direction of where I could go if she hadn't gone to school if she hadn't been so persistent about creating generational wealth through land or you know just like establishing a home base with her husband on a particular land like so many deliberate choices you know they say like ancestral math it ancestral math is real i'm not a deep woo woo kind of girl like i don't have a unified idea of my spirituality but i definitely believe in the power of the ancestors because ancestors are a concrete thing for me they're real people and in my case, I met the people who have become, will become, are already my ancestors. And I absolutely know there's no way I could exist without them and everything that they lived through. And something that I've been drawing a link between me and my show show is our natural inclination to archive things. Like, this is not something I grew up being hugely aware of like it was never at the front of my head I kind of noticed that she was really good at keeping things and you know like if anytime I was there she held all my documents you know passports any important things she was the keeper of that she is I, I don't know if she's a treasurer now but she was definitely the treasurer of one of her like women's groups and in general she's just like good at keeping record which is probably what made her such a great educator what made her able to fulfill duties as a headmistress and made it so that when she reached nine decades of living she now has like an archive like an archive of objects and stories that she has compiled through her own intentions she has 
old obituaries of funerals she's attended. She has written down stories of things she's lived through. She has records of, you know, money going in and out the farm. She is somebody who has truly, whether she knows it or not, like compiled a large part of the history that I'm able to now absorb just because it has been kept on and kept alive through her. Okay, like I feel like I'm kind of speaking very vaguely, but let me let me give a very concrete example. So I don't know how much into the past this was, but my show show made a very clear decision that she wanted to record, not just record, but she wanted to pass on a bunch of her stories to my mom, who would then write them because my show show was, yeah, she just stuck on this idea that she wanted there to be a record of our family, not just like family trees, but family stories. And so my mom has been doing the great work of translating all those stories from Kikuyu to English and taking them from oral histories, from notes that my shosho has and putting them down on paper. And I guess because <laughs> I'm my mom's only child, she was like, um, can you help me edit this? And so I've been helping to edit the English version of all these stories, which I see as both a blessing and an honor because I've been able to learn so much directly like from my shosho and also be part of her creating this written history for all her grandchildren and future descendants to come. I I just like it makes me realize that this whole thing of archiving, this whole thing of creating this audio archive, this podcast, whatever you want to call it. I'm like, this again, this is that ancestral math, you know? We want to talk about girl math, boy math, straight math. Like this is that ancestral math. Because for me, I was just like, oh, you know, I just love documenting things. It's so important, so important. But my social is doing this work in a way that is like truly going to I don't know it just feels like life-changing work it feels like a privilege because I know so many black families especially because we've been ripped apart across the diaspora we've been intentionally kept from each other and uh, kept from our languages kept from our tongues they don't want us to write our stories we know who the they is right like I don't have to spend time talking about them that that that's on purpose and so it feels like my grandma is just really once again emphasizing not just the importance of education, but passing on things. Like for her, education was the vehicle to pass on things. But in a larger context, she's just like, she's just pro-information, pro-history, pro-facts. Like that's what she wants us to have. That's what's important when she's not on this earth. We're going to be able to hold this book. And read about the time that she was stuck in a dark forest and there was a solar eclipse when she was a little girl. Like that, I, in all the years of knowing her, I had never heard that story. And it wasn't until I was editing the chapters of, or, you know, the little vignettes that she's written that I was like, oh my God, could this explain why she's scared of the dark as an adult? And not scared, like she can't be in the dark, but as, as in she's always been, very hyper vigilant about the dark ever since I could remember and I just thought oh you know she's just being overprotective she's just being 
anxious. She's just being a worry wart, da 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 da, which could all be true. But reading that story about how scared she was when the world went dark with no explanation and she was alone, I was like, wow, you know, this is truly priceless information. And it just makes me want to keep on with this archive, make sure that I'm also doing this kind of work because I'm already naturally drawn to it. It also makes me feel more connected to her because being naturally drawn to it, I wasn't influenced by knowing that she did this. It was just something I felt pulled to. And as I'm editing, her story just feels like it's all full circle. I'm just being reminded that it's important to use my voice talk about what I'm living through because there's no such thing as too much like you can't have too many lived experiences all of our lived experiences are so valid and they bring something to the table so uh I love that lady Shosho is just yeah she's a real one she's also my last living grandparent and the fact that she is my last living grandparent just feels especially poignant that she's the one who's so dedicated to documenting our histories. Like, I literally have physical family trees that I can now refer to and stories about these people so that even though I've never met them, like ancestors who existed before my grandmother, I now have not just a family tree, but I also can read about how he was a shepherd and they were nomads. And what can I say? I'm blessed and I'm honored to be her descendant, to be her garana. Garana is, I want to say it's like, what is it? Namesake. It's namesake in Kikuyu. So um, when people have the same name in Kikuyu, you'll hear people say, oh, garana, garana wa akwa, like my, my namesake. And I'm so glad to be her garana. And uh, I really wish I could be there in person, but you know capitalism, borders, imperialism, colonialism, is all the isms continue to work against us. And that makes her stories and her act of documentation that much more powerful and meaningful for me. And it also feels very aligned with everything that's happening in Palestine at the moment. Um, my, my heart and my thoughts are always with oppressed people. And in thinking about the importance of documenting and being very clear and being very vocal about what you've lived through, what you've seen is like, it's of the utmost importance in Palestine right now. Things must be named as they are because as we're seeing in real time, propaganda is literally propping up genocide. Like the fact that the imperialists, the colonialists, they're the ones who are controlling the narrative means that they are able to skew and misdirect people and things aren't getting named. Events are getting erased. People are getting erased. Whole families, whole neighborhoods, whole cities erased because of colonial violence. Like erasure is very, very real. And I have found myself trying to think about what my role is here. What, how do I support and like prop up my own values, which is that oppressed people will have freedom, period, point blank. Like I, that's what I believe. <clears throat> and, you know, without systemic power, it's hard to sometimes imagine what you can do to support your values, support the people who need support, all that. And I'm just, 
as I see more and more people being suppressed, I'm realizing that just being, uh, how do you say, what is it, a bullhorn? What do you call those, the, the mics? I don't even know. English fails me like every day. But I just want to emphasize to myself, my future self, my current self, and anyone else listening to this, that especially if you're American, we must understand that our country is making us complicit in, in genocide. And so even when you feel like you can't do anything, even when you feel the most helpless, what you can actually do because people are being killed and their voices are being suppressed is be loud as hell. Like be loud as hell that you know that this is genocide. Be very clear about the words that you're using. And also just in general, like realize that none of this is short term. We should be looking to gain media literacy for the long term so that we can be able to identify and name propaganda. It's not just this one moment. The fight for liberation will last lifetimes. And because it will last lifetimes, we have to be prepared to set up systems and to shift our language and to shift our lives in order to put weight behind our values. So I don't have anything new to say. All that I can say is that it is very much colonization. We need to be clear on that. It is not an equal fight. What we are seeing is absolutely the extermination of people. We're being distracted or they're trying to distract us with questions about uh, counter culture groups and terrorist groups and this, that, and the third about, we're being distracted by questions about indigeneity, right? Like they're bringing religion into this, talking about, you know, who belongs on this land, da 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 These are all white supremacist talking points. We just have to remain very, very clear that a free Palestine is the goal. It's as simple as that. It's not complicated. So be very clear about the fact that decolonization is violent, not because it's for fun, but because colonization itself is violent. So there's no way that we're going to undo that violence without also putting ourselves in the line, or not even us, we are, we are actually quite protected, but like there is, <laughs> there is no solution that won't include violence. That is what I mean. I won't say more because again, this I have nothing new to offer. What I will say is that if you're seeing rhetoric about, oh, you know, protect your peace and look the other way, just know that if you choose to do that, you've chosen to look away from genocide. So if that's something you can live with, I don't know why you're here. I don't know why you'd be listening to this, but just know that that's what you're living with. If you're listening to this, which there's probably like two or three of you, shout out to you. You know who you are. Yeah, just think about ways that you can resist. Um, there's a lot of information about companies that are based in Israel that you can boycott. So look into that. Also, do not give to these like these huge institutions. Always give directly to the people. Find people who are doing things, organizing on the ground. Funnel money that way. If you have friends who have money, organize them to get money from them to the people on the ground. And this is not, again, Palestine is very important and we must witness that now, but I'm talking about long-term. And maybe in the future, I will actually talk a little bit about what my mutual aid practices are or have been or what, that, what I want them to be, because I think it's important that we talk about what this looks like to include in your life and not just in moments that feel like urgent crises. So 
those are my two, three, four, five cents. Um, shout out to you if you've listened this far. I appreciate you so very much. And yeah, until next time, stay black, stay alive. <laughs>